The human population has increased dramatically in the last two centuries. Since the Industrial Revolution 200 years ago, our population has increased from around 1 billion to nearly 8 billion people. There are many reasons as to why our population is growing at such a rapid rate, but yeah, there are many reasons. Uh, this growth can be attributed to improved healthcare, uh, industrialization, among many other factors. Uh, for humans, our growth can be measured by a theorized model of population growth known as the demographic transition model. This model sets any one nation or country in one stage of four known stages and five potential stages, so five total stages, theoretically. <clears throat> Stage one is a pre-industrial society in which there are high birth rates and high death rates, and thus low population growth, if any, of course. Not a single country on the planet remains in stage one, though some South American, Asian, and African countries remained in this stage only until recently. So, stage one, you could say that we were in stage one as hunters and gatherers, but it was, I would almost consider it like a stage zero, because we had more natural population dynamics compared to stage one, which is generally just a non-industrialized society. I mean, it, it retains some similar natural uh, dynamics to natural population dynamics, but it's just not the same, I guess. Uh, stage two is a newly industrialized society or country in which there are high birth rates and declining death rates and thus extreme and exponential growth. An example of this is Nigeria. So Nigeria will be larger than uh, the United States in terms of population size by 2050, simply because of the fact that they their population is growing exponentially uh, more rapidly than ours is. Like, we don't grow that much. We're not even at replacement level, which you'll learn about that. Stage three is a mature industrial society in which there are declining birth rates, flattening death rates, and extreme yet slowing population growth. A country example of this is India. So they still have high birth rates, but they're declining, and the death rates are beginning to flatten out. They have relatively low death rates compared to a stage two country. A stage two country still has quite high death rates, just not the same. Just not, like, they're still pretty low. I mean, they're still lower than the stage fours and stage fives. Stage four is a post-industrial society in which birth rates flatten below replacement level. Uh, enough, it, basically, replacement level is like having enough children to replace the parents. It's generally around like 2.1, 2.3, depending on where you live, of course. They have to like live until like 18 they have to live until adulthood for it to be like really replacement level so if they die at age three they're not really replacing the parents <coughs> uh, and death rates incline as a result of age uh, thus population growth further decreases and eventually reaches what is known as zero population growth uh, otherwise known as zpg basically means there's no population growth at all a country example of this is the united states so we don't have any significant population growth and our our uh, general birth count is around is around even with replacement. I think we're at like something like one point. I think it was like one point eight, which is well below replacement level. 
Stage five is a theoretical stage that is an ex- extension of the post-industrial society, basically. Uh, the stage is characterized by exceptionally low uh, birth rates, again, below replacement level, and high death rates because of generally an elderly population. So, like, we have a more elderly population than we have a youthful population almost, but we're not quite, we're not quite stage five yet. We will eventually, but not yet. Uh, so... But because of this, uh, a resu- uh, the result is a population decline uh, rather than a population growth. Uh, a country example of this would be Japan. Their their population has been declining for a fair amount of time, and it still is declining to this day. I think they're supposed to lose like 30 million people by like 2050 or something like that. 30 million naturally. So a lot of people will be dying of natural causes. I mean, life expectancy there is high, but it's not quite... It's not infinite, so they 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 experience the, these they experience the demographic chan- transition model just like the rest of us do. I mean, this theory works well for human populations. Don't get me wrong, but what about the natural populations that you actually clicked on this uh, podcast to learn about? When it comes to biological population patterns, we need to uh, understand a whole new set of science known as population biology. Uh, and a whole new set of biological terminology to explain it. Uh, Let's learn about population patterns in the natural world. I actually got this idea, this episode idea, while reading my AP Environmental Science textbook. Uh, We were talking about R and K selection, which we will learn about later in the episode, and I thought it was really interesting, so I decided I'd make a podcast about it, and it, it was pretty interesting. It was not bad. I mean, it's not quite astronomy, but... Science is something else, I'll tell you that. Science is definitely one of the most interesting topics on the planet, whether it's chemistry or astronomy or physics or biology. No matter what, it's always interesting because you get to learn about the reality of of our world before many others do. But yeah, so first of all, we need to talk about some terminology. Uh, There's a lot of terminology when it comes to population dynamics, especially in the natural world. So we're going to uh, speak about five different terms that must be discovered and understood uh, in order to understand what will be spoken later uh, in the episode. So these specific uh, terms are exponential growth, logistic growth, carrying capacities, uh, overshoots, and die-offs. So first we will start with uh, exponential growth. I assume you already probably know what exponential growth is, especially considering its relation to basic algebra and calculus. I mean, in my algebra class last year, I learned about it. I, I, I assume that you probably did in middle school or even high school. Uh, especially, yeah, like that's when it comes down to it. I mean, it has some relation to calculus as well, but exponential growth is more of a, an algebra thing. So the function of exponential growth, and this is why it's calculus, it's functions, uh, is fx equals a uh, parentheses 1 plus r uh, to the xth power. Uh, a being the initial population, r being the rate of growth, and x being the number of time intervals the exponential growth occurs. So a would be, a would be let's just say a is 100, and 1 plus r uh, R is 0.06, so it'd be 1.06. So eight, so 100, 1.06 times 1.06 to the sixth power. I can't do that straight off my head, but uh, it's probably 
I'm guessing it's probably around about 100, 150 to 170. I'm not, I'm not completely sure. If you want to do the calculation, you can, but I don't have my calculator on me. So if you want to do it, go ahead, but I can't do it myself yet. But yeah, uh, unhindered exponential growth is incredibly rare in the natural world, but again, it can happen. I mean, it happened with humans, but that's not really the case. I mean, coronavirus is technically ex unhindered exponential growth as of now, uh, but still, the more likely of the two is logistic growth. So now we're going to talk about logistic growth, of course. Uh, the function of logistic growth is fx equals L, which L is a horizontal asymptote that in biology limits the size of a population. So it's like almost like the carrying capacity. Uh, divided by 1 plus e to the power of negative k uh, times x minus the x naught. If you know what that is, x zero, x naught. If you know what that is, I hope you do because, I mean, it doesn't it doesn't really matter too much for the video, but for the episode, but still, it's good to know math. Math is where it's at. Uh, this function can be seen on a graph as resembling like an S shape, while the uh, exponential growth value is more like a backwards L. But yeah, uh, logistic growth is characterized by an initial low growth or zero growth population later followed by due to a variety of factors. It could be anything that will soon be discussed. Uh, exponential and extreme population growth that eventually levels off as the population reaches its environmental carrying capacity or as a population begins to experience predation or other limiting factors. Uh, carrying capacity is going to be the next word on the list because it's very imperative that you know carrying capacity. So... Carrying capacity is somewhat self-explanatory, but I still wish to explain it to keep from stirring any confusion, of course. Um, and, and environmental carrying capacity, also known by the variable K, is essentially the maximum limit on a population of the same species in an environment. For example, if the population of fig trees in an environment is like 73 and the carrying capacity is 100, the fig tree population can still increase uh, another 27 in population before experiencing environmental, like, almost regulation on its population. So before experiencing any regulators, <laughs> I, I'm just, I'm thinking regulators, like, before it experiences any problems, let's just say it that way. I mean, it can experience problems before that, but before it experiences ecosystem problems. So the ecosystem can't handle uh, 101 fig trees and only can handle 100 so they can still increase their population to 100 but that's it i mean it's not necessarily like this it's not like a straight line that you never can get there there are still some other ways in which you can get there uh, once one hits the carrying capacity a bunch of wild things can happen uh, specifically what are known as overshoots and die-offs which will be explained next overshoots and die-offs uh, both relate exclusively to carrying capacities so the carrying capacity, as I said, uh, is the maximum limit of in individuals to which a species could reach. Uh, yeah, that's pretty much. Uh, sometimes, though, the number of individuals in the population increases exponentially and later, later overshoots the carrying capacity of the environment. Essentially, the population increases above the carrying capacity of the environment in which it lives, dooming itself for what is known as a die-off. Once a population overtakes its carrying capacity, the environment can no longer contain the resources to support the species. Unless the species migrates, or in human terms develops sophisticated technology to increase, fa fa to increase food yields, 
a significant proportion of the species will die, restoring the initial carrying capacity and keeping the species below it. Uh, this will generally happen over and over again, and with uh, K-selected select, species, which you'll learn about in just a minute, uh, with K-selected species, you basically will not have to... It, the population fluctuations are not as severe as with R-type. You will figure that out later. Uh, pretty much. The overshoots and die-offs, like I said, generally continue until some specific indicator, like some specific environmental occurrence event uh, disturbance, when environmental disturbance hinders a population significantly. So it decreases the population significantly. So like a severe die-off that basically restores uh, the population to its original thing. And it could be anything. It could be disease. It could be... It could be disease, it could be predation, it could be the introduction of new species, it could be competition. There are a million different ways in which that can happen. A million different ways by which that can happen. And they're quite interesting. We will discuss two of them. Uh, predation and population fluctuations that result from it. And K-selected and R-selected species types and population dynamics that occur with them. Now that we have actually discussed the population fluctuations in a population, let's actually learn about the most compelling reasons uh, for which populations increase and decrease in size. Uh, first, we will begin with predation and the population fluctuations that result from it. The population fluctuations resulting from predation apply to both the predator and to the prey. It is well known that the major changes that occur in one level of the food chain must affect the entire food chain. This is not confined from predation. First, let's imagine a let's imagine a secondary consumer preying on a primary consumer. A secondary consumer is a carnivore that eats small animals, while primary while a primary consumer is an herbivore that eats plants. Uh, when it comes to predation, there are some dynamics that can alter population growth in a species. Uh, these dynamics are if plant numbers are rich in a particular ecosystem, the primary consumer will have an abundance of food to eat, resulting in an exponential increase in the population due mainly to reduced in instances of famine and starvation. Uh, because of the primary consumer's population increase, the secondary consumer will benefit as well. If the secondary consumer is at the top of the food chain in this ecosystem, its population will grow and grow and continue to grow unhindered until the primary consumer's production fails and falls. Uh, if plant numbers are poorer in a particular ecosystem, the number of primary consumers will also be, appear, be poor because they don't have the they don't have they're not able to obtain enough energy to survive so they'll starve to death and thus uh, the secondary consumers will also be will also have low populations because they won't have they won't be able to supply themselves with enough energy in the first place to be able to survive because the all the primary consumers are dead all many of them the low populations will affect the secondary consumers as well this will generally result in either a die-off or zero population growth. Most likely, uh, the the first. Most likely, it'll be a die-off. Uh, now that we've actually discussed the effects of primary producers on the food chain and on uh, predation, let's discuss the dynamics of predation and population structures. Uh, to explain this, we'll use the Canadian lynx and the snowshoe hare as our example. I can assure you that you've probably learned this in school before. I learned it in my freshman year biology class, my freshman year honors biology class. 
And it's a great example when documenting predation and its effects on population dynamics. So the snowshoe hare is a secondary consumer slash omnivore. Uh, and the Canada lynx, or Canadian lynx, is a tertiary consumer and is at the top of the food chain. It's like, it's almost like a, it's almost like a bobcat. It's, it's similar to a bobcat. It's, it's, I assume that its evolutionary lineage is, it's in that same group and same genus, not even family, just straight up genus. Uh, there are only a few differences. They're very meager. Some of them just coloration, even... Uh, they have like these unusual eyebrows, like, or it might be like, it might be ear brows, to be honest. Th they're interesting, but they are at the top of the food chain. The lynx is at the top of the food chain. Uh, yeah, that's pretty much it. Uh, this particular predation uh, relationship is generally used in biology and for explaining uh, population relationships because it's so obvious it's very highly pronounced, as the snowshoe hare is one of the Canada lynx's only providers of energy. So here are the dynamics by which the lynx and hare generally follow. When the snowshoe hare population is high and the Canada lynx population is low, there is an abundance of food for the Canada lynx. Uh, thus, the Canada lynx population will grow to the point at which predation results in a die-off for the hare population. As a result, the Canada lynx will die off as well, allowing the hare population to grow back while the Canada lynx population remains low. Once the hare population has grown back enough to support that population of uh, lynx, the lynx will, over uh, will keep going after it and will likely not have to deal with famine as much, and their population will increase drastically again until they are over-hunting the... Uh, snowshoe hare is to near extinction and then the entire process begins over again this just continues all over and over and over again so basically you'll start let's just imagine you start with a high lynx and a high hare population the lynx keep growing and they start they just are over hunting the the snowshoe hares and because of that because they're over hunting the snowshoe hare population is falling drastically so when when the snow, when the Canada lynx, uh, when the snowshoe hare population is low, the Canada lynx population dies out. So there's a die-off occurring with the Canada lynx, and this brings down their population drastically, giving room for the snowshoe hare to basically restore its previous population. And as the previous population begins to reach the previous population so as, as as their new population begins to reach the previous population they the lynx population starts to hunt like crazy again they start having food an abundance of food again so their population starts to go up so this just continues on and on and on and it's known for being highly pronounced because the hare is the lynx primary food uh, food source their their populations uh, are incredibly interconnected when the hare population increases the lynx population does as well but when the hare population decreases soon the lynx will as well so the last big thing we should discuss is r and k selection i've spoken about this multiple times earlier in the episode it is a very interesting topic, at least in my opinion. It was the thing that got me inspired to make this episode. I mean, I normally make an astronomy episode. I almost always make astronomy episodes, and this was not astronomy. This was 
biology. This is actually population biology. And I was not good at, I was not good at biology at all, but this is, it's quite easy to understand. So it's not like, it's not like, it's not like some of the sciences, like some of, some of the stuff in astronomy, it takes me, it takes me a little bit to get used to. I mean, that's the whole point of it, right? I mean, they're, it's the whole point of it. You want to teach yourself, uh, the understanding and not even just that, just to be able to figure things out like that in the future by, by getting the experience, you are able to figure things out in the future. So yeah, we're just going to discuss RNK selection and population fluctuations resulting from it. Uh, reproductive concepts are also extremely important in understanding, uh, biological population dynamics. Uh, when it comes to reproduction, there are two main types of species we, one must know in order to understand the population dynamics that result from the reproductive tactics of the species. First, we start off with what is known as an R-selected species. Uh, examples of this uh, type of species include like bacteria, mice, many insects, somewhat rabbits, uh, weeds, and uh, many other plants. They're basically, it's basically characterized by the fact that they produce significant numbers of offspring in their lifetimes, but they pretty much just leave those offspring like after or even before they are born. So they, they don't really parent them. And because of that, they're referred to, they're generally referred to as cheap offspring. I'm pretty sure it's like just, they're referred to as cheap offspring, but yeah. That's that's really what it is. So they don't really do anything. Uh, they don't really do anything when it, after birth. So often our selected species are egg-laying species or like cloning species, like bacteria. They just they just perform a they just perform asexual reproduction or cloning. But yeah, so the offspring are abandoned basically from birth, and their path to adulthood is short, but is still long and hard in terms in the term that it is very unlikely that they will survive it. A vast majority of the offspring will die long before adulthood, but the few that make it out will generally uh, they'll generally just be fine. They'll generally begin the same process that their parents did. Now, the other one is known as the case-selected species. Examples of case-selected species include humans, of course, uh, other large mammals, birds, horses, and large plants like trees, large trees. Some of them, some large trees. These species are characterized by the fact that they produce limited offspring throughout their lifetime, but cherish and protect those offspring until their adulthood. This basically results in a high survival rate for the offspring because they have guidance and protection from their parents, uh, who will go on to begin the same process their parents did as they reach adulthood. K-selected species generally live much longer than R-selected species and generally die at old age rather than at random or young ages. So there are three different types of species. There's a type 1 species in which most of the animals or most of the offspring die in the first, uh, like the first portion of their lives of the average life expectancy or the life expectancy. Then there's a type 2, which is basically, it's like a rabbit, for example, uh, they ju it's just kind of steady the entire time. There's no really die off at any particular point in one's life. And then there's also the type three. So the type three is uh, essentially, or well, actually, yeah, it's essentially just the. Uh, it's a old age. They live to old age and they die off. It might actually be type three, 
it might be reversed from type one and type three, but yeah, that's, that's essentially what it is. Not only do the R-selected and K-selected species relate with their own unique reproductive dynamics, but they also relate with their own unique population dynamics. Understanding the population dynamics of both the K and R-selected species is important to understanding population biology. The R-selected species, simply because of its vast numbers of offspring, is more likely to endure exponential growth, but not only does it frequently experience ex exponential growth, it also grows and reaches its carrying capacity far faster than the K-selected species do. Uh, an R-selected population is more inconsistent uh, and flashy than the K-selected populations are. So, like, if an, if an R-selected species was introduced to an ecosystem that was that it could tolerate, it would just shoot up straight to the carrying capacity and then would experience harsh, and I mean really harsh, die-offs and um, overshoots. It overshoot way over the pop uh, over the carrying capacity, immediately die off like crazy, and then go back up again. And it would just continue on and on and on. But yeah, so the K-selected species, on the other hand, because of its meager numbers of offspring and long life expectancies, is likely to endure significant and speedy, or is less likely to endure significant and speedy population growth. Even if it does experience significant population growth and exponential growth as a result of abundant natural resources. So like with humans, we've been experiencing that ever since the Industrial Revolution, even before that somewhat. The population growth is still quite slow because of the limited rate at which a case-selected species reproduces. Now imagine if ants were humans, were in the human situation. Imagine how many would be there. We would have die-outs like crazy. It would suck. We would have die-offs all the time. And there would be major die-offs. As the case-selected species begins to reach the carrying capacity, its population growth slows and halts, with meager overshoots and die-offs continuing until a large die-off results in it starting all over again. Now, this could happen at any time, but, yeah, it can happen at any time, but it, the big thing is that it restores the original population. Exponential growth to an environmental carrying capacity takes significantly longer for a K-selected species than for an R-selected species, but the population fluctuations for a K-selected uh, species are significantly less uh, so than an R-selected species. So basically, biological population dynamics are undoubtedly significantly different from population dynamics of the human population. For humans, it's the demographic transition model. For animals, it's R-selection, K-selection, predation, disease, everything. Many different natural occurrences. While humanity's population dynamics generally depend more so on its development, on its crop yields, natural species population dynamics depend almost exclusively on its ability to find food and its ability to keep the deadly infectious organisms away from it. Also, the their selection. What are they R selected or K selected? So we learned about R selection and K selection today. We also learned about uh, predation, we learned about the demographic transition model, we learned about exponential growth, logistic growth, the differences between them, the carrying capacity, overshoots, and die-offs. So anyways, thank you all for watching or listening. Thank you all for listening. And as always, have a good morning, afternoon, evening, and night. Take care and stay curious.